Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. Let me ask you a question. What, what is your approach to getting dressed in these strange days? I still believe in getting dressed. What about you? Dressing gown most of the time. Really? Yeah, but I am, um, you know, trying to belt it during working hours. That is interesting. I just want to say I'm only wearing the dressing gown when I'm working from home. When I go to the BBC, it's sweatpants. How's your week been? My week's been fine. It hasn't been mainly involved in my dressing gown. Um, actually, I did my first broadcast interview from home about uh, support for business. And I think I'm in quite an unusual category because I'm a victim of fake news, but it's redounded to my benefit. Go on. So basically, I got quite a lot of tweets after or, or at least one tweet which then led to more tweets and messages from random people who i know saying that people were very impressed with my collection of football manager behind me on my bookshelf and so a football manager is like a game basically you know it's like a computer, a computer game, game. Yeah, the, yeah 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 and, and it's like and the thing was, it's quite a big collection. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, my children must be playing football manager. I kind of didn't really compute. And then the next day, I suddenly thought, no, my children don't play football manager because they don't have the thing that you play football manager on. And then I realized that somebody had photoshopped it on. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm now getting all these tweets from people saying how impressed they are by my, you know, Football manager collection, relatives of people I know who say my cousin wanted you to know that he's they're really impressed with your, you know, which team are you managing? You know, it's sort of, it's kind of, it's kind of highly consistent. And I, I kind of even feel bad about correcting it. You know what I mean? Oh, that's great. So what I'm interested to know is what had they photoshopped that over? Was it your collection of ZX Spectrum games? No, no, it's just, it's just on the bookshelf and. And for some reason, I didn't clock that it wasn't mine until I realised it wasn't mine. <laughs> anyway, oh, brilliant. Fake, it's a rare example, as I say, of fake news being of benefit. But I'm sad to disappoint people. I think I had a thing on Wikipedia saying I was in a punk band once, and and I sort of I don't think I I didn't sort of rush to take it down, and then somebody else did. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Did you go out and do the uh, the the clap for the NHS on Thursday? I did. I always feel incredibly emotional at it and um i sort of think why would we ever stop doing it yes that's a really good point let me let me ask you a question is it okay to talk to your neighbors at a responsible distance during the clap i think in a sort of sort of wavy way yes right because i i was asking um my next door neighbor about a parcel and then my wife started glaring at me 
and she said I shouldn't be asking about a parcel during the clapping. But I, I don't think you should be doing your business during the clapping. I, was, I didn't stop clapping. No, I think it's a little bit Larry David. I don't think you should be doing your business during the... I think, I think you do the clapping, then do the parcel, or mm. do the parcel, then do the clapping, I think. All I need is a rule to adhere to. Okay. Focus. I think focus on the clapping. Okay. Don't good, you think? Good to uh, know. You know what's interesting for me is there's a sort of really interesting kind of kind of domino effect in this which is at the beginning people went out and were like and was saying i don't know whether anyone else would be doing it and i was pleased to see other people were doing it and then more people did it and then we all saw that some people were using pots and pans so there are a lot more pots and pans this week yes yeah i told you somebody's got a trombone on our road i think you may have mentioned this yeah shall i get out my glockenspiel (laughs) (laughs) or recorder yeah uh, should we uh, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? This week, Jeff, we're talking about the relationship between crises and social change. Lots of people are beginning to think about the long-term impact of coronavirus on our society and our economy. We're looking at what can be learned from the past and asking what determines whether major crises lead to positive or negative change. I, I must say we are joined by two incredibly erudite, I would say, and some fantastic guests uh historian walter scheidel his book the great leveler is all about what are the forces in society that led to lower inequality um what are the events uh in particular around catastrophic events he's examined inequality over thousands of years and came to some some interesting conclusions about their impact um i, I should say to you my mother bought this book for me for christmas um at my request i think two or three years ago so i'm really pleased to be talking to him and then we're talking to distinguished sociologist theda scotchpole about the origin of the welfare state and her views about the history of social change very very festive in the miliband household isn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> and, and, I'm, I'm, I'm conforming to stereotype i think yes. uh, and i'm owning i'm owning it good good glad to hear it and we have a cheerful person for you this week, um, and it is somebody. It's a conversation we recorded a while ago before the coronavirus crisis, and it was Ed. Ed, Ed was extremely giddy to talk to him. It's Paul Sinton Hewitt, who is Great the man. man behind Park Run. Our Park Run episode remains one of our most popular ones, yeah. and, and we finally got to meet the man uh, of whom it was his brainchild. Yeah, he's a great man. And what's your reason to be cheerful? Uh, my reason to be cheerful is it was my son's fourth birthday this week, so we um, we we had planned a party prior to all this, and we had to cancel it. So we we had to improvise a little bit, but we had a lovely day. We did uh, we made a home cinema. We closed all the curtains and watched Trolls World Tour. I got loads of his friends from nursery and teachers to send video messages and edited them all together. Oh, and, well done! Uh, he's obsessed with crocodiles at the minute, so I found somebody who couriered as a, a crocodile birthday cake. So yeah, oh. it was, you know, it's, it's, and what was his big present? His big present was a DJ mixer. My God. You know, like a sort of Fisher-Pricey one. Um, one of his friends has got one, and he's sort of a little bit obsessed by it. Um, my wife Maybe is, you should get me one of those. Is that what you want for your birthday? <laughs> so is it because he sees you doing it? No, I, I, I don't think so. We've tried to uh, – my wife and I have both tried to conceal our careers from him as much as possible, right. lest that he would want to go into either of our professions. But uh, he's, he's seen it in some film or something. It's uh, it's far more and, sophisticated than what I'd had when I was doing my mobile discos. And he sort of was perfectly – he had a nice time. Yeah. It wasn't too yeah. affected by it. Yeah. Well, that's that's really good. And it is your birthday on the day this episode comes out, Monday. That's right, yes. You're 40 this year, aren't you? <laughs> I think, well, I'm, I'm officially entering my, what I, is 40, does 47 count as your late 40s? Or mid. I, so, Claim okay, it as okay, mid. Okay, so I'm still in my mid 40s. No big change for me. As somebody um, who's in a, you know, an entirely different decade of their life, do you have any words of wisdom for me? I just prefer low number. The second number being low is what I prefer psychologically. <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is actually thanks to you because you 
texted me to say that the World Snooker Final of 1985, the final frame between Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis, was available on iPlayer. Um, now, this was a seminal event for me. I, I, my dad was not a great fan of sport, but the one sport he really got into was snooker. I stayed up till half past midnight, along with, I think, 18 million other people, uh, watching that World Snooker final. And the thing I remember most about it was that I was doing my art O-level, and you had to submit some coursework. And I had an absolutely, my mum was away, and I had an absolutely massive row with him, because I basically hadn't, which is very unlike me, I basically hadn't bothered to do any of the coursework, and I had two days to do it. And I sort of said, he said, well, I'm just, I said, I'm not going to bother because I don't, I don't care about art. And he, and it, he was pretty furious. So I then, th- there was a tree outside our house. So I then did a picture of the tree. And, and this is a complete injustice. I got an A in my art O level. And it is a total injustice because I cannot draw for toffee. But that tree is now in the National Gallery. It's in my mum's house. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, to talk about these this issue of crises and what kind of change they lead to, and whether they lead to progressive or reactionary change, uh, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Walter Scheidel, who is Professor of History at Stanford University. He is the author of The Great Leveller, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century, uh, an incredibly interesting and sweeping um, uh, historical uh, book, uh, as I said in the introduction, uh, one that my mother uh, was kind enough to buy me for Christmas. Um, Walter Thank you so much for joining us. You're you're actually in Manhattan, are you? I'm in Manhattan right now, which is where all the action is. And how is lockdown for you? It made the city very quiet. We are holed up at home very peacefully, and I get a lot of work done. But it's a pretty grim situation. Yeah, it, 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 it really is. And, of course, you are somebody who has written about pandemics in the context of your book, um, The Great uh, Leveller. Um, just for our audience, just set out at a high level your argument about the relationship between catastrophes and inequality that, that, that is really the, 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 the main argument you make in The Great Leveller. Well, my argument in a nutshell is that every single time you see a major reduction in economic inequality in, at any time in recorded history, it was caused by a major disaster, some kind of catastrophic event. And those disasters came in four different flavors. That's why I call them the four horsemen of leveling. Two of them were common in most of history in pre-modern agrarian societies. One is the collapse of states, which happens all the time. Think of the fall of the Roman Empire. And that makes sense because early states are really vehicles of inequality. They favor the rich and powerful, even more than modern states do. And when governmental structures unravel, everybody is worse off as a result, but the rich have more to lose. And so inequality goes down. The second driver would be a very severe plague. I guess we'll come back to that perhaps in a moment. And then in the 20th century, two new um, leveling forces appear very closely related, mass mobilization warfare, World War I, and especially World War II, and communist revolutions uh, in Russia out of World War I, in China out of World War II, which of course have the objective of reducing inequality by often very violent means. So Walter, this, this theory, was this an inkling you had and then you looked for uh, evidence in the data to back it up? Or was it something that the data suggested to you? Well, my inspiration was really Thomas Piketty's book on capital in the 21st century, who looked at the last couple hundred years, which for an economist is actually quite impressive. But I'm a pre-modern historian, and I felt it would be a good idea to look at the full sweep of history to see if we could identify a broad pattern. And I've always had an intuition that this might be the case. And it turned out to be true, at least that's my argument, that it turns out to be true that we can find this pattern, which hadn't been previously observed over hundreds and in some cases thousands of years. So I think in this case, a pre-modern historian was able to make a real uh, uh, contribution because everything fell into place quite quickly. And that's what made it possible for me to finish the book just in a couple 
of years because I couldn't really find any genuine counterexamples to my thesis. Just say something about we're obviously in a pandemic at the moment. Um, you know, people are reaching for historical parallels, and no historical parallel is completely accurate. But you start off by talking about the plague, which I believe the 14th century plague. Is that correct? That's correct. That's the most dramatic case. And the impact that had on in economic inequality in Europe. And it, it doesn't, it's not going to apply in, in our case in the same way. But just explain your analysis of that, because it is, it'll be interesting for our audience. What happened in the Black Death in the 14th century is that bubonic plague comes in and it kills about a third of all people in Europe. Not overnight, but it lingers for a number of generations it kills maybe half of the population of England. And as a result of that, so many people die that labor becomes scarce and the surviving workers are able to charge much higher wages, which employers have to pay. And at the same time, there's still the same amount of land, the same amount of capital. So what the rich own is worth less and the labor of the poor is worth more. So the rich are less rich and the poor are less poor. And inequality goes down for a number of generations till the plague goes away. Population recovers and real wages uh, go down again. Now, I should say, though, and this is quite significant, I think, with reference to the present, um, that this is, this is mediated by different factors. So in some cases, like England, workers are able to do so because the nobility, which is trying to resist them, doesn't succeed. They fail to uh, push back on those demands by workers. And so living conditions improve for the masses. But in other parts of the world, in Central Eastern Europe, for instance, the elites maintain a united front. They crack down on workers and force them under sometimes even worse conditions than before. So the political system that's in place is an important variable uh, in this. And it's it's not just, and I know loss of life is a huge factor, but that's not the 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 only factor. Um, what are what are other things that happen in catastrophes that change public opinion and, and build a groundswell that uh, states have to react to? So, if we go back to the Black Death uh, again for a moment, even the late Middle Ages. Uh, when the plague rages, people lose confidence in established authority. They are more willing to confront secular authorities, the feudal uh, lords, and bargain much harder for higher wages. And they also lose confidence in the Catholic Church because the Church is not able to do anything about uh, the plague. Uh, they, they seek out alternative options. And in some sense, this prepares the ground later on for the Reformation. And just talk to us then about the world wars and their dramatic effects on inequality, because that's obviously one of your four horsemen. In, in this case, World War II had a particularly dramatic effect because any number of things come together. Returns on capital, which is mostly owned by the rich, falls dramatically because of the dislocations of warfare and because of aggressive government intervention in the private sector that curtails the profits that capitalists can make. Uh, the state imposes controls on prices, wages, rents, dividends, all kinds of things that reduce inequality. It raises taxation on incomes and, um, and wealth, especially uh, for high earners and for rich people. There's full employment because of conscription and the war effort. Uh, unions get stronger. And then after the war, after 1945, there are secondary uh, effects because the attitudes are also affected by the experience of war. There is now the expectation that the state should do more for the common people. And that leads to the, the fully-fledged modern welfare state that we still have today. And Britain is, in fact, a textbook uh, example of this dynamic. Walter, I, I know that you don't argue that it's inevitable that um, inequality is reduced in the wake of a catastrophe. What, what are the factors uh, that determine whether a catastrophe has a, a knock-on effect on inequality? I think the single most important determinant is the severity of the disaster. It appears that in order to act as a leveling force, a disaster has to be really, really bad. Most wars don't reduce inequality. Most epidemics don't either. But if they reach catastrophic proportions and pervade societies in a very fundamental way, they can actually have that effect. Uh, the second variable would be, and I already referred to this in the context of the plague, would be a kind of political regime 
that is in place because different societies respond differently to these shocks that occur through war or epidemics. And that also mediates um, the outcomes. So, for instance, in World War I, some countries don't raise taxes. They just print a lot of money and inequality actually goes up. In those countries and in other places like the U.S. or the U.K., inequality goes down dramatically because the government takes different measures. So we always come back uh, to the fact that political regime institutions matter quite a bit in determining the the final outcome. So if, if you look at the circumstances of the current crisis, what what do you think your argument means for the likely impact and outcomes of coronavirus? Well, there are obvious differences. We already know, luckily, mercifully, that the demographic effect isn't going to be nearly as severe as it was in earlier plagues. There's not going to be a shortage of labor that is going to drive up wages. Quite the opposite. Unemployment is going to keep wages down for the foreseeable future. I think ultimately everything depends on how severe this crisis will turn out to be in the end. If science comes through, if we get effective treatment, vaccines within a reasonable amount of time, if we don't enter a global economic depression, we'll probably see some return to a version of business as usual, which in annual countries will mean persistently high inequality. There's not going to be a major leveling effect. If, on the other hand, the crisis turns out to be even worse than we currently anticipate because uh, the virus proves to be more intractable, or we have a global uh, depression, then all bets are off because then you will get even more inequality, immiseration in the short term. Well, that kind of discontent may destabilize the existing order and push the electorate in the direction of favoring more radical, more progressive, more transformative change, which is what happened, for instance, in the 30s in various ways. Right now, I don't think that's the most likely outcome, but the potential is certainly there. Let's challenge this a little bit, um, Walter, because in a sense, you're obviously not wanting things to be worse, but you're saying if things got worse, it will be more likely to produce change. But you also said recently, if there is one lesson we can draw from history, it is what really matters is that the way that this kind of crisis shapes political preferences and decision-making. Now, obviously, that would apply if things were worse. But I think, it, I, you know, it's not just in the UK, but also in the US, we have seen changes made by government and a light shone on the inadequacies of the safety net, which workers really matter to the core running of a society, issues about power at work, what the market values. Is it and, and you're going to have to give me a crumb of hope here, Walter, so bear with me. Um, is it not the case that what you've said about the way a crisis shapes political preferences and decision-making is correct and that, you know, there are reasons to be hopeful that some of the injustices that have been, that were there before this crisis but have been exposed by this crisis can be tackled? Well, the grain of hope I can give you is that this is crisis number two. And crisis number one, 12 years ago, the financial crisis, in a way, prepared the ground for this. This is when we really started talking about economic inequality. There would not have been a Bernie Sanders without the Great Recession. And it is possible that smaller crises that happen in relatively rapid succession will have a cumulative effect. So maybe if the current crisis builds on some of the things uh, unleashed by the previous one, it can push us in the direction of strengthening the safety net, uh, rethinking uh, terms of taxation and so on. That is certainly an option. It may well be our best hope in this context. And let me ask you this question. When you are teaching at Stanford when before the lockdown, and you, I'm sure you have young uh, students who are idealistic, and they hear about your work, and they say to you, uh, but hang on a minute, Professor Scheidel, I'm working on climate change, uh, you know, $15 minimum wage, um, all of these campaigns. Are you really saying, you know, this is all futile unless you have these disasters? I'm careful not to say it's futile. Few. Yeah, well, but I want to make sure they understand it's really difficult and it takes much more than you might think it takes to affect real change. 
I'm sure you are much more familiar with this from your personal experience. I, I am. I am. I am. No doubt. And I think in that sense, my argument is maybe helpful. It shouldn't be taken as, as pure defeatism. But I think it is important for policymakers or the citizenry in general to have some awareness of just how high the obstacles are to any real change in times of uh, peace and stability. History uh, doesn't always give us a lot of hope. And that you can take to mean we simply have to work even harder. Well, we have to try even harder to make this happen, develop new ways of addressing uh, this problem because we don't want to sit around waiting for the next crisis to strike. That's a good note to end on. Professor Walter Scheidel, thanks so much for joining us. And we're delighted to talk now to Theda Scotchpole, who is Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. Theda, hello. How is uh, how's life under lockdown for you? Well, it's uh, a somewhat more boring version of normal. The only big problem is that my husband and I normally go out for breakfast at a diner here at six o'clock in the morning and interact with a with the regulars at 6 a.m., which is a small group, and we miss them all. What's the diner called, Theda? Andy's Diner, and there's an article about it, actually. If you, if you put Andy's Diner and my name in, you're going to see an article that was done by the Harvard Gazette a year ago because our group were big, are big Patriots fans, New England Patriots. Me we, too. Now, Theda, we, we began this podcast by talking to Walter Scheidel and his book, The Great Leveler, at a sort of top high level, just for our listeners, give us a sense of the forces that you think shape the outcomes from from crisis. Well, when I look over the course of American history, I would say there are only two major crises that have promoted equality uh, in various dimensions, and that would be the Civil War and World War II. Uh, Now, not coincidentally, those are the biggest wars in American history. The Civil War was actually the biggest in terms of the proportion of the population involved and the casualties. And it's sort of a characteristically American major crisis, and then it was about ourselves. But those two, they did something that's hard to do in American um, federal politics and capitalism. They forced more of an alliance between the most privileged elites in the society and the mass of the population, partly because the military side of both of those struggles required large numbers of soldiers, Uh, but also because they created a moral economy in which um, privileged elites felt a lot of peer pressure and a lot of approval from the society for committing themselves to a solidarity with everyone else. And just to be clear for our listeners, one of the most important contributions you've made to the field, you edited a book, I think, called Bringing the State Back In. And so really what you're partly identifying in your work is this right, is that the structure of states, the extent to which there's a centralized authority, the extent to which power is uh, dispersed, uh, the nature of patronage in those states, that's one of the things that's fundamental to determining whether whether change can happen at these kind of, you know, and we'll come on to talk about this moment, but at these moments of, of crisis. Right. I think about kind of the intersection of the structure of the economy and kinds of class forces that any good Marxist would talk about with the institutional structure of government, of state power. And you have to understand what's distinctive about each and how they come together to get a sense of the terrain on which public opinion or social movements operate in a crisis. It's not that public opinion doesn't matter. It's not that social or that voters don't matter. It's not that social movements are unimportant. But how they're going to play out really depends a lot on the uh, structure of the economy and how it intersects with the structure of state power. And and the example of that in your work would be that in the UK, at least when it came to the early part of the twentieth century. The, the the forces that that would be 
requesting a, a modern, uh, well, a, a welfare state were more able to sort of penetrate, if you like, and have impact on the state than in the US? Yeah, I mean, let's take both Britain and say um, uh, Sweden. These are both countries that in different forms and to different degrees had professionalized uh, civil services. By the time you get to the industrial era and the rise of trade unions, there is um, a capable state organization that could implement more egalitarian policies if its political direction could be shifted that way. Um, So when the Labour Party or even the Labour Party and the Liberals begin to gain power in Britain, they've got something they can work with. Um, That was much less true in the United States. It was kind of any step forward for Labour power uh, was always tentative. And um, it, it wasn't until the 1930s that you even got in certain spheres of the federal government the germs of a, of a civil service that could carry through um, new social programs if they could get enacted through Congress. And, and so why in that context does Franklin Roosevelt, and I know these are big questions, why does his New Deal which was, you know, about America getting out of the depression and was a massive program of uh, Keynesian investment. Why does that? How does that happen then in the in in the in the shape of in the in the context of the forces that you're talking about? Well, it didn't really happen until you piled World War II on top of the Great Depression. I'm a historical institutionalist. That may, means that I take these institutional forms into account. I also look at the sequence of things. And uh, the fact, I I think if you just had the Great Depression and you had not had World War II after the Great Depression in the United States, it might be that very little of what we know as the New Deal state uh, would have survived or been carried through effectively. Can we talk about the, the, the current coronavirus crisis how do you envisage society will change in the United States and, in fact, around the world in, in the wake of this crisis? We need optimism here, Theda. Mm-hmm. Well, in any crisis uh, like this, well, any crisis really, my perspective t- says that you must look what was going on before you went into the crisis to see what might be either exacerbated or uh, shift during the crisis. So um, it's not a determinant perspective, and it really isn't here. I mean, I personally believe that there are both tragic possibilities here and very hopeful ones. And they depend just as was true three months ago before we had this lockdown on who wins the 2020 election. Because you are seeing not a pulling together of American elites in the faces of this pandemic crisis, but a further exacerbation of their divisions about the role of government and about how far to go, for example, in sustaining employment for less privileged workers. That'll change if the Democrats win these elections next fall, um, if the Democrats win the presidency and carry the Senate. Bringing the two parts together, the sort of history and your analysis of the of the current situation, and I know this is a very very hard question to answer, but what's the sort of space in which social movements and ideas can determine outcomes? Give us a sort of insight into what you learn about this this role of social movements and ideas. Well, that's where some of my current research and my colleagues and I have been doing. We've We've, we've really studied three major forces that have been playing out over the last 20 years and that are coming to a, a dramatic uh, denouement. We've tracked the growth of ultra-free market um, millionaire-billionaire forces, the Coke Network and others, that have really been trying to dismantle uh, 
any kind of national government capacity to tax and spend and regulate um, the market economy. And then there are two major popular social movements that have played out in the United States in the last decade. When Barack Obama was elected president, the Tea Party broke out. And the Tea Party has elite elements, but at its base, it was a nationwide voluntary movement of middle-class Americans, older whites, very alarmed at the changing ethnic uh, uh, composition of the country and the possibility that government might um, redistribute. On the other hand, when Trump was elected along with Republicans, that's just eight years after the Tea Party explosion, you had an equally, even actually our research shows more extensive and better organized popular movement on the center left. And I think a lot of leftist commentary treats that as a movement of young people and people of color, but that's not really true. It was a bunch of older white women. But that popular uh, citizens movement on the center left is what makes it likely that Democrats can win resounding victories this November. But both of these popular movements are white middle-class movements. So it's a civil war inside the American white middle-class about what the country means as a community going forward. And they also disagree profoundly about the role of government in providing basics like healthcare. Last question, Theda. You said earlier on something very, very important and interesting, which is, the two big moments of change that you'd identified in American history or two big moments of change were when the elite interests and and the interests of ordinary people in some sense um, aligned. If there is to be the kind of profound change that you and and I think I and Jeff would want to see, is that what needs to happen or does it need to sort of buck that trend? No, I mean, I think this movement on the center left at the popular level it's a middle-class movement. It has to energize and prod the remaining elements of the American elite establishments of various kinds, business, academia, politics, in the direction of, of reasserting um, solidarity with the national community. Take somebody like Joe Biden. He doesn't thrill the American left. Uh, but he's a good guy and he represents the side of the democratic party that would be perfectly prepared to go as far as they can go uh, in extending healthcare, educational opportunity, investing in climate change remedies. Uh, He's not going to do it alone, but he's not going to stand in the way. And he has allied with him going into this election. Um, the more uh, public regarding uh, elements of American elite life. Um, well, look, Theda, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Go Pats, uh, as only a few people listening to this podcast will understand. <laughs> um, uh, and thank you so much for joining us. It's been incredibly informative, uh, educational and enlightening. All right. Well, thank you. It's an, I've enjoyed talking with you. So, Jeff, what did you think? Well, uh, it got more optimistic as it went along, didn't it? It it? did. And something I think I have asked loads of times on this podcast is why after 2008, we didn't see big change come along. And I thought, well, maybe an answer to that is that it's not one of Walter's four horsemen. So maybe that's why there wasn't big change in the wake of 2008. But sort of more, more pertinently, something Theda said was that actually the these ideas they don't just come out of nowhere um during a moment of crisis they are the ideas that have been talked about um you know and the the the, the campaigns the grassroots campaigns the the movements and it made me feel sort of broadly positive about the the ideas we've been talking about on the podcast for these past few years if if this is a point in hi- human history where people are going to look at what ideas are on the shelf, then the the time could come for a, for a lot of our reasons to be cheerful ideas.
You know, it's interesting you should say that because you and Milton Friedman, the um, right-wing economist, uh, think in similar ways. I'm always being compared to Milton Friedman. So, so Milton Friedman said, when crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the po- politically impossible becomes a politically inevitable. Um which I think is a sort of interesting quote, and I wouldn't say change is is politically inevitable. But as I said in the interview, you know, this crisis has shone a light on some real, really fundamental problems in society. Now, I think at the moment we're in the rescue phase where we've got to do absolutely everything to protect people through this crisis. But there will come a time when we've got to then think about, well, what do we build as... um, Hannah Martin said last week, we're not just going to rebuild the house in the same way. And, and therefore, what does, what does that rebuilding look like? And I suppose, I suppose the other thing I come out of these discussions thinking is, why is it useful? Our listeners might be thinking, because certainly Walter was pretty pessimistic. I think it's useful because you've got to, you know, sense of history is always useful, but also, it's not just about the ideas, it's the social forces, the social movements that are available to, to push those ideas. And, and those movements, so the ideas matter, but the, the movements that we build, the forces that we build, are also incredibly important. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As ever, we're really enjoying hearing from you, but especially uh, during these weird times, if you've got anything you would like to contribute, anything you'd like to say about episodes that you've heard already or ideas for what we could be talking about on the podcast, then do get in touch. Do it through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Nancy and Jason, who say, we generally listen while we're working together in our small restaurant in Suffolk. We're currently doing deliveries and takeouts. Saw this and thought it was worth a mention and a push to those making decisions and planning around air pollution and making Britain less car-centric. And then there's a a link to an article in The Guardian online about cities which are turning their streets over to walkers and cyclists, um, which is something we've talked about a bit, but I'm a as you know, I'm a big, big fan of walking and I think both Ed and I would do more cycling if uh, there was less traffic about. Well, I'd do more cycling if I didn't fall off, but I'm just badly coordinated. But I completely agree with the principle. I think Oakland, I think, closed off like 80 of their streets to allow people to walk around during lockdown. That's great. So I think it's a good, I think it's a really good point. It is weird when you go out, there's so little traffic on the roads. And it's, it's weird how people don't move into the road to give each other a bit of space. I'm a big road into, into the road mover. Me too. I wish more people would do it. Yeah, I think it's a good principle. This one comes from Helen Beckett. Hi, I really enjoyed the latest podcast and I hope the government do consider how to make a green exit from this crisis. Do you think in your new role, Ed, you could lead a campaign for Grexit? Yes. I think the problem about Grexit is it might have been taken by Greek exit from the European Union. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? I mean, you could get in touch with the Greeks and see if they'd be up for a rebrand. Recovery, maybe. Very good. Yeah. 
or should I just stick to the day job? Um, hope you keep up the good work, so important, but especially at this moment. No, I think it's really important, and you can count on me, Helen. It was re- useful to learn from, from last week's episode, and it's something I'm very focused on. And this comes from Marco. And uh, do you remember we were talking about 3D printers making yes. PPE? This is a, yes. a, a, a similar vein. Uh, Marco says, a few weeks ago, we set up a volunteer initiative to help with PPE shortage in the UK. It's sos-supplies.com. Uh, we saw suppliers who have PPE stock in the UK. Many of them even offer same-day delivery. And we match them up with charities and organisations who need urgent supplies. I do think the response on this on PPE has been incredible from people sort of stepping up to the challenge of of supplying it hasn't it i mean we obviously covered it but it's just it is pretty remarkable yeah it's brilliant send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast and this week on uh our cheerful people slot i am more than delighted to say that we have Paul Sinton Hewitt, the extraordinary founder of Parkrun. Thank you so much for coming on. And I know you will have told this story thousands of times, but I think it bears repeating for our listeners. How did it all start, Paul? Well, it's 15 years ago. Um, you know, I progressed through society as you do. I had a fairly full life, lots of international travel, lots of business, lots of stress, um, difficult marriage that didn't work out, stuff that we all deal with. And throughout my life, I had periods of what I now know to be depression. In those days, I just saw it as being difficult, where I would have mood swings and uh, I would find myself in a position of um, antagonism. And uh, 15 years ago, a whole bunch of things came crashing down. I was working, got fired. Um, I had a relationship that broke down. And then I was on a really uh, determined path to run my best ever marathon at London Marathon. And uh, in a cross-country match for my local club, I tripped and fell. And I tore most of the left side of my body. The bottom line was that I couldn't run. I had some diagnosis, and and they said it'll be a couple of years before you oh can God. run. So I'm 42. I've just run a 2:40 marathon, uh, and I had in sight a 2:30 marathon. My previous best wow. was 2:36. Wow. This is all taken away. I've got this black space. And the long and the short of it was, I thought, well, I've just got to get out. Running had been a part of my life for very long, and it had smoothed the ups and the downs. And there I was stuck, not being able to do that. So um, I thought, well, probably past doing any sort of competitive running again, 42, why don't I start to give back to my local community? And I thought, well, what's the one thing I could do that nobody else has ever done and I came across this format, very, very uh, simple 5K in a park. It's always the same route. It's always at exactly the same time. But it hadn't Every done, but it wasn't, it wasn't happening, was it? Well, it had happened in South Africa. Right. Not, not very different to what we right. do. But the, the format of right. just pitching up yeah. and running a 5K time And this trial. is 2004 you start 2004. doing it in, in Bushy Park. Yeah. And you and 12... No, five. There were four other volunteers and thirteen runners. A thirteen runners in on a particular Saturday in two thousand and second of October um, when I started. So was it done like it was done as a no? No, right. So on day one, thirteen people lined up. I had produced a map of the course. It was a it's Bushy Park. It's a very simple course. You run around the perimeter and you come back. Keep the trees on your left, etc. And uh, and I said to everyone, look, if you get it yeah. wrong just don't hassle come back next week and you'll get it right yeah so that is how it started i think we should then just sort of totally fast forward to today give us the stats how many people how many countries how many parts we're now in uh, i think 23 countries uh, we're now just in excess of 2000 weekly events um they're on a weekly uh, participation we're around about 350,000 people who participate there's six million people registered six million people about a million and a half register every year new so that's growing by a million and a half every year um we've got 
in excess of half a million volunteers. And in any one particular year, I would imagine around three or four hundred of thousand of them participate and volunteer. I mean, it's just extraordinary because I and I I become a park run board. Jeff tells me, uh, but I mean, you know, I was in Canada last summer in Vancouver, and I slept to the place in Vancouver where the park run happens and did it. And, you know, I was coming away at the end and talking to some other people, I think Brits who were there, and they were, and, and we were saying, isn't it extraordinary? There's just no way, being on holiday, you would decide to go and do a five-kilometre run first thing in the morning. I mean, just, just, that's not really what I – well, not me, anyway, I wouldn't do that. But there's something about the – the 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 institution and the idea and the fraternity and all of that so it is ironic because when i was a runner in my early years so the first 20 years of running i would never have got out of bed to run a 5k yeah i mean who would do that that's yeah. just you know i used to say to myself if i didn't run for more than 40 minutes it wasn't really a run it wasn't right. building on anything right. it was uh Park run is much more than a run. And of course, uh, the way I like to perceive it is when you build your house, you don't really think about the plumbing. You just want it hidden. It's there. It's essential. Without it, it doesn't work. Park run, the run in park run is like the plumbing in a house. So everything else is amplified. The people you meet, yeah. the uh, the people who help you around totally. the course. There, there are so many stories from people whose lives are changed through the experience. It's not about the five. The 5K run doesn't save anyone. Of course, it makes you healthier and it makes you feel better about yourself. But it's all of these things together which have that total well-being effect that you get uh, when you're feeling great. I mean, the fact is free is really important, isn't it? I think it's a fundamental part of what has made it yeah. uh, what it is today. So there are very few barriers to taking yeah. part in a park run. Clearly, there are always barriers, depending on where you are in your life. But I would suggest that there are very few barriers. And with the approach that we have that everyone's welcome, uh, we'll do the very best we can to help you get round. We'll uh, make it as simple and as fun as possible. I think it it has enabled the swelling of participation. I mean, look, did you have any idea when you started it what would happen? No, and I'm pleased I didn't because but, I probably wouldn't have but done he, it. But, but at what point did you realise, oh, this this, this is, is a big this, deal? Yeah. You have to remember that this is a weekly affair. It's incremental. Yeah. And if you take week by week, the uh, the growth is marginal. If you take it over a year, it tends to be in the first, say, five years, around 30 to 40 percent. And and it just keeps going. And you resisted for a long time exactly. going beyond Bushy Park, didn't exactly. you? So I, I had two, uh, two friends who counseled me in that first year. And of course, the questions were, well, how can you possibly make this work? It's got no business model whatsoever. And they were right. It's a yeah. volunteer-led initiative where I was funding it. And there was no real prospect of it being uh, a financially stable product. And I was proud of that. In fact, everything we did was to come away from that. So the fact that it was free, the fact that it, uh, it, we didn't want to call it a race, the fact that we published everything. We didn't try and hide anything. We made it as um, accessible as possible. There was, I wasn't trying to build a, um, a product that would eventually become financially successful. That was never the goal. But what I did want was for everyone to have a great experience. So from day one, it didn't matter whether you ran with a dog or a buggy. Yeah. It didn't matter whether you were a runner even. Yeah. Um, that was fundamental to the whole thing. And free was a barrier. If Even if we charged a pound, yeah. uh, I reckon we wouldn't be half yeah, I completely the agree community with that. we are today. You know they have this thing in, is it in computing the Moore's law? It doubles, the computing barrier doubles every 18 yeah. months. I mean, what is Sinton Hewitt's law here? I mean, it, 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 it's been exponential. And it'll continue to be that, I think. Um, uh, what, what has amazed me, so in 2015, Dean, I stepped back from day to day running the company. What I think has happened is at that point, I started to run out of my own steam. I 
uh, where was this going? The only thing I could think of was we'd have more runs in more places around the world. Yeah. Nick Pearson, Tom Williams yeah. stepped in and between us came up with the uh, we'll make the world a healthier and happier place. So you start to think about, well, what can you do in the context of a free Saturday run with volunteer led community what can you and do diversity is important in that yeah. as as equality your colleague said when everything. he was on the podcast yeah so the whole idea of uh, what we can do as an organization all, all of a sudden became well the, the world's our oyster and i'm com- you know i go to the board meetings and i'm often quite surprised by the next initiative that's being uh, yeah. touted and it's always I mean, I, I couldn't have come up with that myself. And I'm thinking, why didn't I think of that? How brilliant is that? Just And it's all about making the world healthy and happier. How many have you done? I'm on 460-something. Oh, that's quite a lot. What are you up to? Uh, about... 37 38 yeah, your red shirt's on its way yeah i know I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to it come on jeff this year the way i said it, it's it's got to be something that comes to you when you're ready and it doesn't really matter when you're ready when you are ready go and enjoy it and and you'll find that there are certain things that tick your box and they'll get you more engaged more involved but if you're not ready would you walk around with me yeah, but then I'd feel bad because I'd be holding you back and then bringing yeah. your average down. Average is not important. No, we don't care about that. Okay. So my fastest park run is about eighteen twenty. done a few years ago after I, I came back from injury. My slowest is about 54 minutes. And it was probably the most valuable experience I had. What, I, was, what was that? So I went to North Harlow Fields, which is a, a very um, diverse community on the uh, west of London. And uh, I had a small Achilles injury, so I decided I would just walk at the back. And a chap, young 16-year-old Asian boy was walking behind me. So I turned to him and said, well, what's your story? He said, oh, it's my first park run. So I said, oh, how, how, how come you're here? He said, oh, my dad, who I don't live with, brought me. And he does it regularly. And now I'm doing it. I said, oh, okay. And we started chatting. So I focused on the things that might be interesting to him. What do you do at school? And what are your best subjects? And how is it going? And then he starts saying to me, uh, how much further do we have? And I say, okay, well, we've got two kilometers to go. And then it was one and a half. And then it was one. And by the time we finished, he was so elated about having finished, he had completely forgotten about the distance. We were all talking about stuff. And then he found out that I was the founder of Parkrun, and he turned to me and said, this is probably the most significant day in my life. I've just completely blown my mind that this event exists, that I can do it at my pace. And he brought his dad over, and his dad nearly fell over because <laughs> I had done the whole Parkrun. story. And, and Elsie, if I may say, uh, Paul, I mean, for somebody who's done such an extraordinary thing, you have an incredible humility about it. Well, it, it, I mean, well, I just noticed that at, fin- at Finsbury Park when we met, that you were very, very, um, you know, uh, what's the right word? You, you sort of, you know, you didn't, you were kind of low key about, well, you know. Parkrun is uh, an amazing organisation. Uh, it's an amazing collection of people. And the volunteers deserve all the credit. The fact of the matter is all I created was this tiny little free, simple 5K run around a park. I set out the morals and the values and so on, and, and the people have got behind that, and they've said, this is worthwhile, it's worth protecting, we are going to look after it. And it's now being looked after by hundreds of thousands of people. Clearly, I'm still part of it, and uh, I don't think I ever want not to yeah. be part of it. But it, it's clear to me that this is its brilliance is because of the people who are involved, not just me, and definitely not only me. Well, look, Paul Sinton, I mean, these, you've definitely given us reasons to be Absolutely. cheerful. I think the jury is out on whether... Well, you should do it in your own time. That's, when that's you're what Paul ready. said. Yeah. yeah. When, when, when will you be ready? D- d- stop pushing me. <laughs> I'll get there. You'll get there. Yeah. Paul Sinton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So we're in the outro and I feel like I need to sort of make up for not wishing you a happy birthday at the start of the episode. So I want to sort of reinforce... My happy birthday. Would you like me to sing happy birthday while washing my hands twice? <laughs> no, while singing it twice while washing my hands? I'd just like to watch you washing your hands twice without a soundtrack. Oh, really? 
I'm not sure you would. What's your plan for your birthday? I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of leaving it up to my wife to fill my day with delights and surprises. Who knows what that will look like in uh, in coronavirus? But um, that that's my plan so far. I fear my present to you will have to wait till lockdown ends because I don't want to disobey social distancing rules. That's what Sarah said as well. She tried to order something about a week before. And There's quite long delays. Yeah, it, was, it says it's not going to be arriving until the beginning of June, so I've resigned. I don't, I don't mind. I don't you know, like too much of a fuss. You can rest assured that I will be not buying you another vegan cheesemaker um, come, <laughs> come the end of lockdown. Because I think one vegan cheesemaker, even though it's a brilliant present, is enough for any man yes. or woman. Yeah. Don't yeah. you think? Yeah, I think so. No no man needs two vegan cheesemakers. It's it's greedy. Maybe in the coming year we can make vegan cheese together. Maybe that could be the first thing we do when we come out of um, social distancing. Should we thank our guests? I, I, I'd like to thank uh, Walter Scheidel and Stephen Scotchpole. And thanks to the brilliant Paul Sinton Hewitt. Was, what an inspirational gentleman. Thanks to Emma Corsham, who produces our podcast. Research is by Joel Pierce with Pavlina Dragonova, Eli Madison Evans, and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our little eye dents. And our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. 